done the work, I've done the hustle, and I've always found my way back to the field of tussle. Where Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, folks. Well, just off the top, I got an article to share with you uh, that I think was uh, probably my favorite thing I read the past week. Uh, it was by the, uh, the the Marxist critic and literary theorist Terry Eagleton. I, I don't know if you have any relationship to the uh, the novelist Martin Amos, but he passed away recently. I have some relationship, not so much with his novels, but his literary nonfiction I've read a fair amount of. Um, I have probably the same take that you would have, which is that a heavyweight intellectual in many ways, a wonderful writer, a terrific prose quite a good literary critic um politically could could have been better you know on, cer- on certain well, on the, certain the, things the reason yeah. i bring this up is because i think uh, eagleton's piece which is called the liberal complacency of martin amos this is published in unheard i think it really articulates very well the political limitations of someone like martin amos while also you know acknowledging fully uh his his real gifts as a stylist and you know eagleton actually ends the article where most of it is very uh, he's very critical uh but at the end he just says he was a fabulously gifted writer and though I never met him he wouldn't share a TV studio with me his relatively early death is a sore loss to the Republic of Letters um, so that's how he ends it but most of the essay uh, is concerned with kind of the limitations of Amos's politics and I bring it up partly just because I think it's 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 interesting but also because you know it's not just about Amos it's also about the sort of literary milieu that produced him and I think Eagleton says something very interesting about it which you'll see immediately uh, why why it attracted me um, but Amos writes Amos's own clique, Salman Rushdie, Julian Barnes, Ian McEwen, Christopher Hitchens, James Fenton, Clive James, were a formidably talented bunch of wits and whiz kids, almost all of them products of Oxbridge in an era of intense cultural creativity, the 60s and 70s. Between them, they have produced superlative fiction, caustic satire, and devastating humor. Hitchens, who wrote that the life of the poxed and superating John F. Kennedy was remarkable not for being cut short, but for lasting so long, described Prince Charles as he was then as a, quote, morose, bat-eared, and chinless man prematurely aged with the most abysmal taste in royal consorts. Ian Fleming was, quote, a heavy sadist and narcissist and all-around pervert with a particular penchant for the human bottom. Hitchens' spiritual twin, Martin Amos, easily matched him for mordant wit. He was the finger poet of the postmodern metropolis, his finger unerringly on the pulse of its hard-boiled streetwise, sexually libidinous inhabitants. His sensibility belonged as exactly to its time and place as that of Dickens or Faulkner. We were ushered into a depthless, deregulated world of appetite, self-interest, and purely vacuous freedom in which anything goes of literary style. Style in Amos is what rises triumphantly above the squalor of his material. Its shapeliness, equipoise, and finesse constitute an implicit critique of contemporary culture, which saved him from anything as uncool as having to pass explicit moral judgments on it. He once remarked that he would sell his grandmother for a finely tuned phrase, and if I were his grandmother, I would have taken this comment seriously enough to go into hiding. In a literary milieu in which style is sometimes considered elitist, few modern writers can handle a sentence so superbly. And I'm just going to skip a little bit, um, but this is the part of Eagleton's essay that interested me the most. There is a disparity in Amos's writing between the sordid or macabre events it narrates and the tamely conventional views which silently underpin it. It's a discrepancy which is true in different ways of Rushdie and McEwen. These writers portray a late capitalist world which shows up the bankruptcy of liberal values, yet they have no alternative to such values themselves. Like most liberals, they are nervous of convictions and commitments, which appear to them as dogmatism and soulless system. Amos dismissed socialism and Christianity as obsolete ideologies, but in his view, all ideologies were 
obsolete. Except, of course, middle-class liberalism, which is no more than plain common sense. One of Clive James's favorite slogans was Padazel, though one imagines that his aversion to ardor didn't apply to opposing general strikes. So I don't know, I think that uh, articulates something quite profound about, you know, a particular genre of kind of male British fiction from this particular generation and clique. All the people Eagleton discusses in that piece were very gifted writers, but the limitation in their worldview is the same one uh, that you can find uh, in their politics. I mean, there is a one-to-one relationship between those two things. And, you know, they are all members of Generation X, which, you know, insofar as it's possible to generalize about entire generations. And, you know, I, I say this with the caveat that it, you know, it's it's inherently sort of fraught and uh, problematic to do that in the first place. But insofar as it's possible to make a generalization about Gen X, in some ways the Ur Gen X experience is sort of you know it's living through the collapse of '60s idealism and sort of following its descent into neoliberalism and then kind of the 1990s and the end of history and then later the 9-11 moment as well. And so much political identity of people who lived that trajectory uh, really has to do with what their relationship to it comes to be. Do they accept it? Do they reject it? Um, in the case of these writers, do they maintain a kind of withering distance from it that's so withering it precludes them from having to make explicit kind of moral or ethical or political judgments about it? An enterprise, which I think is eagle points out is kind of ultimately self-defeating since at the end of the day all these guys were you know are basically middle-class liberals and they just don't recognize uh, the ideology of middle-class liberalism as an ideology I always feel bad when I bring this subject up because it's not super relevant, but it means a lot to me. But I also don't really enjoy talking about it. And yet this man, th- this man's name comes up on this podcast inevitably once every six months because he means a great deal to me. And um, look, it's John Cleese. Oh my God, what's he been up to? I've been actively trying not to mention him on the podcast because every time he tweets, it breaks my heart. I I thought about this because I started to think of British entertainers of that period. And, um, you know, I don't don't know what it is in the water over in the UK over there that's made a generation of people like this. But uh, he and Eric Idle have been beefing on Twitter lately. I always hate seeing my dad's fight. You know, Monty Python meant a great deal to me. It hurts me. It hurts me in my soul to see this. Uh, But this led me down the John Cleese rabbit hole. Uh, There is no one who is more of an old man than him right now. And again, the reason I keep bringing him up is because I truly think for like five years in the 1970s, nobody was funnier. You know, (laughs) you watch the Gourmet Night episode of Faulty Towers. Faulty Towers really holds up. It's very funny. The man was the Mozart of comedy. You know, him. There is that thing they took out, which was probably a good idea. (laughs) Oh, that? Yeah. 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 Well, well, the thing is, uh, times change. Contexts change. And there's a new story going around right now. This seems to be the source of some of the dispute between uh, the two the two men. Cleese is adapting Life of Brian to be a stage show. Uh, because, of course, you get to a certain age and you don't have any new ideas anymore, and that's fine. Uh, so I'm just reading in in the Telegraph here. And by the way, another thing that makes me sad is anytime Monty Python is in the news now, um, it's always, you know, right-wing British media or something saying, oh, I can't bloody say that anymore. Bloody Zoomers cancelling Monty Python. Yeah, you couldn't make the dead parrot sketch today. You couldn't have a man walk silly anymore. They'll call that ableist or something, you know? <laughs> like, that's, that's the level of dis 
discourse. And it makes me sad because, you know, I grew up always thinking, boy, those guys were so on the cutting edge, you know, those guys reinvented comedy. And it gets sad when they all get older and it becomes almost like this symbol of like, you know, the passing of the old guard, the the long moan of an old generation as it goes not gently into the night. I mean, there's a common thread running through this whole discussion right from the beginning, because it's kind of what happened to that, you know, Amos literary clique as well, right? Just like in any generation, but I think, you know, particularly in this one that, you know, we're talking about, there have been very strong pressures. And, you know, there's partly they're just the normal pressures that are associated. They're not even pressures, the normal risks associated with success where, you know, whatever creative spark there was gets kind of just, you know, extinguished by, you know, too many invitations to Buckingham Palace. But you're right, it is painful what's happened with uh, with Monty Python. I mean, I guess to be fair, Cleese uh, is somebody who always had like he was he was doing ads for like the SDP Liberal sure. Alliance in the sure. in the 80s and stuff. So he's kind of always had those politics. But I don't know, so many figures from that whole cohort, you know, broadly defined, we're casting a pretty big net here, you know, artists, political figures, writers, musicians, comedians, so many of them ossified. And yeah, I mean, in the case of Cleese, like he's just a scold now. So you'll recall in Life of Brian, do you remember there's that character, a member of the People's Front of Judea, whose name is Stan, but who wants to become a woman named Loretta, mm-hmm. and talks about, uh, wants to have babies. And the Cleese character is like, you can't have babies, you don't even have a womb. You know, obviously that meant something very different in 1979 than it does now. So he's adapted it to this stage play. And Cleese said the performers involved in the read-through told him, we love the script, but you can't do that stuff about Loretta nowadays. Speaking to an audience for his one-man show, he added, so here you have something there's never been a complaint about in 40 years that I've heard of. And now all of a sudden we can't do it because it'll offend people. What is one supposed to make of that? I don't know. Just make of it. Just don't do the sketch. Be sensitive to the complaint. If you're a comedian, part of the job of being a comedian is to... Are you supposed to remain plugged into things? Well, you're supposed to like read the temperature of the room. You're supposed to understand that the context surrounding jokes changes. In 1979, when that scene was written and performed... There was virtually no discussion in the cultural mainstream about transgender issues. Now there's a great deal of discussion in the cultural mainstream about transgender issues. And the job of a comedian is to adapt to that reality. You can't just tell the same joke as if it's still 1979. I find it sad, frankly. I find it sad that one of the great comic minds of his generation won't do that, but also like like is so belligerent about it has to be 1979. Like this joke has to work in the same way that it worked in 1979. And I think to do that joke nowadays, like I don't think they did that joke with malice in 1979, but to do it nowadays, I think by definition is to do it with malice. But it also speaks to like the muscles atrophying. You know, if you can't adapt that movie, that story to the current cultural context and and you don't even want to like, yeah, the muscles just aren't there anymore. Well, well, I want to tell you about a concert I went to last night. I had a pretty special experience going to see, I mean, I, I regret that I was not actually in Prague for the Roger Waters concert there last night, but it was broadcast live to something like 1,500 theaters around the world. So I was able to catch it with a friend at a local cineplex in Toronto. I'd never done anything like that. I think... A lot like a live event. Yeah, I mean, thing. I think yeah. I think you and I once went to a Mystery Science Theater thing that was live, which, That's was, right. which was pretty cool. But I mean, I'd certainly never been to, you know, a concert, you know, like this live. And, you know, Waters, you know, very much in the, in the sort of Pink Floyd tradition from which he comes. 
becomes, you know, he puts on a massive show. You know, there's, a, there's something like a nine-piece band, not very many of them, uh, but this huge, huge sound and big screens and special effects and stuff. Really, really fantastic. If people have kind of caught wind of his tour at all, they will have seen that it's been uh, controversial in some quarters. Um, well, I woke up to some news articles about this this morning, actually. I mean, Roger Waters, you know, a figure whose name often gets tossed around these days as as a, a problematic. What I saw were a lot of out-of-context photos of him oh, wearing yeah. something... Obvious, Fascist regalia. <laughs> obviously designed to look like it's, Nazi regalia. And, I, you know, I just want to say, if you take this complaint seriously at all, like, you need to have your head examined. You need to, you need to understand how, like, art works like Roger Waters the guy who made the wall is in a concert wearing wearing fascist the character regalia. from the wall like which what, is an anti-fascist like uh, what the you know, piece of what art. the fuck do you think he's doing like get your head examined if, yeah like if, if you're dominant conclusions based on that image out of context like you're on my pay no mind list yeah ridiculous uh but it really struck me I mean it was it was a really amazing concert I mean just to kind of describe what the set list was you know it opened with comfortably numb which is a little bit of an unusual choice because because of the guitar solos that are in the original version that's usually a sort of showstopper that you put midway through and that's where it appears on the album and in the film as well Uh, we will talk about the film on the pod uh, at some point but, you know, Waters actually began the show with this sort of downbeat version of it that was much more of like, instead of being a show stopper, it was a stage setter, which was really interesting. Uh, then he went through this sort of, um, you know, another brick in the wall suite, played some originals. Then he played uh, basically the second side of Wish You Were Here, opening with Have a Cigar, maybe the best live rendition of that I've ever heard. The song Wish You Were Here, which I don't think I'd ever actually heard him sing, even though he wrote the lyrics, done up as a straight tribute to Sid Barrett, complete with a story that Waters shared of him and Barrett riding a train together in a conversation they had in Cambridge in the 1960s. Incredibly moving. Uh, there was then an intermission, some more stuff from the wall, and sort of the center of the second half was basically playing the second half of Dark Side of the Moon. So Money, Us and Them, Any Color You Like. Really amazing rendition of that song. Brain Damage, Eclipse, and then finishing with some stuff off the final cut and uh, a new song called The Bar, which Waters uh, debuted last night uh, at the show. Really thoroughly enjoyed it. I have a few things I want to say about it. One is that if I have any friendly criticism of that set list or of the performance, which, I mean, it's not even really a criticism because I had a great time, but I do think it's interesting that there was not a single song that was played, uh, I think, from before 1975. Uh, I don't think I'm wrong about that. There was nothing predating Dark Side of the Moon. So that makes sense in a way. It's with that record that Pink Floyd found just unfathomable commercial success after being a sort of avant-garde underground band and then just sort of a band that made like weird music that was successful, but definitely not, you know, selling 60 million albums successful. But I mean, it's still a shame to me because half the albums and more than half of the music that Pink Floyd recorded predates the dark side of the moon. And I feel like a lot of people just kind of skip over it. I bring this up partly because we're going to have some content coming soon on the Patreon that's going to be concerned with some of Pink Floyd's early music, and I have an interview tentatively set up that I'm pretty excited about, so look forward to that in the near future. Patreon.com slash Michael and us. That's right, an extra episode a week, and also all kinds of other bonus content. You know the drill. You've heard it before, folks. Yeah, subscribe for five years. He used to say we're bad at promoting the Patreon, (laughs) but we're not anymore. (laughs) 
Right. And I mean, we are kind of stopping the show here uh, just for a sec. But, you know, Waters, Waters got away with this last night to deliver various political messages. So I'm comfortable doing oh, it Oh, they here. came across loud and clear, Luke. <laughs> and some of us are very concerned. <laughs> but uh, apparently it's good for uh, the pod if you uh, rate and review it as well. And every time we've asked for this, a few reviews have trickled in, some more ratings. I realize it's an annoying ask. I realize every single YouTube channel or podcast you subscribe to asks you to do this. But particularly if you're not able to uh, subscribe to the Patreon, you'd be doing us a big solid by rating us and, and leaving us a review. It helps the pod turn up in, you know, algorithms and, su- you know, suggestions and things like that, yeah, which, yeah. Helps us, which helps us grow our listener base. Five stars only, please. I'm not interested in any constructive criticism. Thank you. Well, there was a fun one recently. I don't read the reviews, first of all. <laughs> Well, there's a fun one recently, which was a, which was a positive review, but then they observed that uh, you know sometimes the hosts seem to genuinely dislike each other. Ding 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, just to close out the Roger Waters show, something that was really hitting me by the end of the night was the extent to which Roger Waters can really be understood as the anti-Bono. Bono is a guy who is sort of known as like the political rock star, but his politics are you know they're, they're completely in line with like World Economic Forum, like Davos. Orthodoxy. There was that interview he gave in the past year where he said something like, you know, one of the crazy things about being an activist is, you know, you, you put in all this time and you realize at the end of the day, you know, the greatest anti-poverty measure there is is called capitalism or something <laughs> like that. So, you know, it's just totally formless, you know, feel-goodism, absolutely toothless. At this concert last night, you know, there was one montage, you know, Waters is putting all kinds of world leaders on blast, various appearances of, you know, like Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, but also Barack Obama and Joe Biden. Like, he's just calling all these people war criminals. He's reading out lists of names of, you know, indigenous and Black Lives Matter activists, you know, who were killed in state violence. You know, there's a Standing Rock montage against one of the songs. And the show began with uh, Roger Waters from backstage making two announcements, one which was a polite and whimsical request for people to please turn off their cell phones, and the other in which he said, and just as a final note, if you're one of those people who says, well, I like Pink Floyd, but I can't stand Roger's politics, now would be a good time to fuck off. (laughs) JP McDee's piece on Winter Tonight has reinforced my belief that we are a strong people. We earn our money from the tourists in the summer, and we stick it out in the harsh environment every winter that makes us tough tussleville really is a magic spot that's what my uncle dan used to tell me and my cousins when we'd sit by the fire isn't that right poopy good old uncle dan i wish i could have known him better stories about him are legendary he's the only person we know who could have found a way to die of hypothermia in the middle of the summer Well, not sure how to start this discussion, except to note that uh, outside Luke's apartment, the brass band that occasionally plays in his neighborhood is once again going. They were doing a soy version of Call Me Maybe. Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah, they only have about 10 songs. That's one of them. They also do like uh, there's a Jackson 5 song they do, which they like much, much inferior to the original version. Uh, There's they do Katy Perry. I kiss the girl and the uh, one of the horn players always botches the same note in the in the (laughs) 
chorus. Just a couple of Tusselbill troubadours out there. <laughs> so the movie that we're discussing is 2022's Magic Spot by the dynamic duo of New England-based filmmakers Matt Farley and Charlie Roxburgh. We're very lucky to have also someone um, involved in the production in the studio <laughs> with us, Mr. Will Sloan, who is credited as an associate producer on this movie. He's in the credits, folks. That's right. So this may be a conflict of interest. <laughs> Let me tell you, I do not see any royalties from this. <laughs> yeah, I'm an associate producer because Matt Farley on Twitter one day said, uh, if you send us a hundred bucks, you can be an associate producer. He put out a general call. Uh, I think it was like 400 to be an executive producer. So I went I went with the economy class option. Uh, you know, for the privilege of seeing my name in the credits of a new film by two of my very favorite active filmmakers. Now, uh, Farley and Roxburgh have been on my mind lately because I just saw them in the greater Boston area. Uh, I mentioned this on the podcast last week, Farley's annual Moturn extravaganza. Moturn is the name of his production company, if company is the right word, his his shingle his label uh if you need a quick recapping he's the most prolific songwriter in the world probably uh 24,000 songs and counting on spotify most of them novelty songs his biggest one is the poop song because he figured out years ago that bored people on these music platforms start searching words like poop or celebrity names and if they click it enough times you get a couple dollars of royalties per year per song multiply that by 20,000 and you have a sustainable middle class income. Sounds like a great plan, but you've got to write the well, you got to you got to do the 20,000 songs and, you know, every now and then there'll be an article. In fact, there was one in the Huffington Post last week that's about him that's kind of like, "Oh, get a load of this guy. Get a lo- <clears throat> get a load of this weird Spotify spammer who does these weird songs." But I bring him to the podcast and Charlie Roxburgh as well because uh, I think, well, frankly, I think they're very great artists. And I came to them through their movies. Uh, They don't make money on the movies, but for 25 years, they've been making these movies that uh, you could call them the most elaborate home movies ever made. You could also maybe call them the best home movies ever made. They make these movies where they recruit, you know, family members and co-workers and friends and friends of friends and anybody, anybody who is willing to uh, read a few lines of dialogue in front of a camera. And over the years, they've amassed this incredible... uh, Altman-esque repertory company of, <laughs> of, you know, like people again, at the event last week um, there were a bunch of the people who were in their movies there and you would see people getting starstruck at these you know, normal people from Including you, in fact. Oh, of course, these normal people from New England. In fact, I think I'll show you a picture that I took of this is me with uh, popular Moturn star. Oh, wow. Yeah. Kevin McGee. I'm starstruck just looking at that. Yeah. I mean, imagine you're meeting Kevin McGee, you know, a man who exudes like patriarchal authority, <laughs> you know, a man who who rolls in, rolls into this room with all these Matt Farley fans with the demeanor of a Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and probably in his regular life, he's just a guy. <laughs> but but to that room of 120 people, he was a... He, there was no bigger star. So this movie, Magic Spot, which you can watch right now on Tubi, and um, I think others of their films are on Amazon Prime and, you know... Really? Amazon Prime? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. You can watch, I think, Don't Let the River Beast Get You on that. Well, Uh, Local Legends, as we, I think, discussed last week, is probably the one to start with, correct? I would would think so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Local Legends kind of lays out, like, what the deal is, uh, the context for all this. Mm -hmm. 
it helps to have a little bit of context because my experience with these movies always, and I've, you know, I've seen, I've seen them all. I've seen them all repeatedly. And it's been this way since I saw the first one is you're in there for 10 minutes and you're thinking, oh, okay, this is like, this is a really amateur movie. And then after a while, it starts to envelop you in the bizarre world that it creates. There's a internal consistency into the world it creates. There's a, a matching of like form and function here. Like the aesthetic complements the themes and the plots are often quite complicated with a lot yes. of moving parts. Yes. And then it always happens to me, even at this late date, around an hour in, I start thinking, why am I caring about this story? Why am I, why am I feeling moved now by these characters and their plight? That's the magic trick that these movies pull. So magic spot. I'm not quite sure what direction to start in. I think I think it might be important to start with talking about the aesthetic of the movie. Um, it was made on a budget of. I want to say zero dollars, <laughs> like maybe, I mean, I'm sure it, I'm sure it costs, it costs gas money to drive from one town to the other. In local legends, there's a scene where Farley in talking about his movie says that each movie costs about as much as the price of a used car. But he says, I'd rather have a bunch of movies than a bunch of used cars, um, which is a very powerful thing to say. I mean, since making Local Legends, both he and Charlie, you know, they, they have families, they have mortgages, they have jobs, and yet they persist in making these movies. And they've had to sort of adapt making those movies around those circumstances. For the first, you know, maybe 15 years of making these movies, I don't think anybody saw them. One of the first people I know who saw them is my friend Peter Kaplowski, who got a screener when he was programming for a film festival in like 2007 2008 for a movie called freaky farley and he said that he watched it he was so perplexed by this he thought like are they do they know what they're doing like like what is this and he couldn't he didn't have the clout to get it in the festival but he called them and he said hey really like this movie keep doing what you're doing and supposedly for years afterwards they would say well that that one guy in canada likes us <laughs> uh, but over the last you know decade or so a small but real cult has formed around them if you go on letterboxd you'll see more and more people discovering these movies and one-upping each other, trying to articulate what, uh, I think I saw one describe them as what non-Newtonian substance they're made out of. <laughs> well, if people are interested in the deep history of all of this, they can, of course, get your book, uh, Moturn on Moturn, which you put out with your co-host of your other podcast, uh, The Important Cinema Club, Justin DeClue. And I have a copy of it. It's a wonderful book. It's got original artwork. I love the way you you guys, uh, you know, discussed and situated Matt Farley's filmography. I also just love like the way you did the table of contents where it's like, you know, the early films, <laughs> yeah. you had, like the later films. Then you've got interviews with like the different players who are recurring characters. Wonderfully done. Where can people get that? Oh, I maybe you've heard of it. Amazon.com. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when, when I was doing that book, I was at a uh, job, a day job that I did not uh, enjoy doing. And it was at the very beginning of the pandemic as well. And I remember Justin and Peter Kaplowski were working with this theater in New York to do an online like Twitch retrospective of their movies. And every couple of days, they'd show one of the movies, and there'd be like a live comment section where people would gather. And it was amazing to watch this play out over a couple of days, because these guys who had never had any experience with like fans interacting with their work, suddenly there'd be, you know, 100, 200 people a night watching these movies. 
movies and like commenting. And by the time like movie five comes around, they're in, they're in the comment section going like, oh, it's Kevin McGee. <laughs> you know, everybody freaking out that Kevin McGee's in the movie. And I remember at one point somebody asked, well, why does this character have a wedding ring on? They're not married. And Charlie said, well, better to have them wear the wedding ring than waste an hour of shooting day trying to find a lost wedding ring. And I thought, we got to get stories like this between the covers of a book. <laughs> And like being at this job that I really didn't like the act of writing that book, I almost I almost felt as like a sort of like gesture of like, you know what, I'm going to fucking do a do a thing with no audience and put like an insane amount of work into a project with no audience. I, I DM. I, it's it's yeah. like, it's you're, you're like uh, John Cusack and high fidelity where he discovers those two like punk kids yeah. who make really dope music. And then he like puts out their record. And I remember, I remember, I remember DMing Justin and saying, what if we did a book of interviews like Bergman on Bergman, but it was them. And we do every movie, including the ones that 30 living people have seen. And he was like, yeah, let's, let's, let's do it. So we spent, you know, a couple of weeks, weekends, just a couple hours every weekend, just interviewing them about their movies. And I mean, they're just, you know, making movies at this level, just all their stories of like what happens when it's the shooting day and the person doesn't show up because they decided to go to a barbecue instead. You know, <laughs> that's the, that's like that level of filmmaking is incredible. Uh, but all the history of uh, you provided is interesting and, and, and I think is important context for the magic spot, uh, the film we just watched, because the plot centers around a local cable access show that's only uh, you know it's only available it's, li- it's broadcast live and it's only available within 30 kilometers of the transmitter and the Farley character who's the host and his compatriots have this very principled idea that you know they're not going to record any of this stuff they're not going to broadcast they're, you know, they're not going to stream it online or anything it exists kind of just for the moment and just for the people who, who dig it and who are involved in it and I mean that sounds like it pretty much mirrors uh, you know his, his early films at least and kind of the, uh, the context surrounding them yeah, one of the things I always found moving about Matt and Charlie is, you know, in, in Matt's career, you see, and you can see this in local legends, this, even his low level, this battle between art and commerce. He lives the dream of making a living on his art and his creativity. But, but only by leaning heavily into commerce and sort of the, the weird, like he's figured out how to game yes. like, like online streaming music commerce in like this very specific way. Right. And he's a talented musician. He makes serious music when the time allows. But yes, there's a bit of a monkey's paw element to that. He's done it with novelty songs. And the movies, I mean, I, I, I've always found them very powerful because yeah, like he, they spent 10 years making these with like no audience and they got increasingly elaborate up to and including movies like Don't Let the River Beast Get You which is the first one I saw this 100 minute movie with all of these characters all these moving parts for an audience of no one and that felt like a very powerful gesture well the essay that you wrote to open the book Moturn on Moturn is called For Art's Sake and I feel like that's what you're describing here Matt himself has written a little book called The Moturn Method where he talks about you know his philosophy of creation and he leans very much into the idea of like just creating creating and creating and creating and wanting it to be good, but also not getting too hung up on it being good. Right. Like the creation itself is its own act. You've got to create it, you've got to finish it, and you've got to, you've got to keep going on. Um, and you see, you see a little bit of that in this movie too. The recent Moturn movies all have this strand that's weaving through them about this philosophy of artistic creation. Beach pizza. I do not want to hear you talk about your big city pizza. There's no better pizza than Tussleville Beach Pizza. Look at this stuff. Oh, magical. 
Why do they put provolone on a perfectly good slice of cheese pizza? That's just the way pizza's done around here. You take a perfectly good cheese pizza, you put a slice of provolone cheese on it, you cook it, and you eat it. Nothing better. Nobody else came out here to play in the mouths of sand and sun and golden waves. So the plot of the movie, it's set in the fictional town of Tussleville which, you know, may or may not be Danvers, Massachusetts. It's this prototypical American small town. Uh, throughout the movie, I mean, it, it creates a Springfield-like diegesis here, <laughs> where, like, over the course of the movie, you come to know, you know, this vast array of townsfolk, yeah. as well as a whole tapestry of local customs. Yeah, know? little affectations attached to each character. It's like, oh, yeah, here's the, the light bulb guys, or here's the guy that always carries around a blanket for some reason has a bouncy ball and he's sad because the brand of bouncy ball that he used to get no longer is carried in the local shop and the new bouncy ball doesn't have the same bounce in it and any one of these like little affectations only means so much on its own but taken together by the end of the movie you feel like you've lived in this town you know you find out you find out that there's a custom there called beach pizza they only have they have pizza on the beach and they take a perfectly normal slice of personal pan pizza and they put a slice of provolone on top of it and they melt it and why do they do that? Well, nobody knows why. It's just they do that in the area. And by the way, when I was at Hampton Beach, did this, you eat? Did you eat? I that? did. That, that, that's an actual. That's an actual uh, Massachusetts thing. <laughs> uh, Farley himself stars as Walter, the host of this public access show called Tussleville Talent Tonight, where a variety of townsfolk come on and demonstrate their talents. Uh, none of them look. I mean, particularly <laughs> impressive, but that's part of the fun. The, the funniest thing in the movie, the funniest like individual gag in the movie uh, to me was uh, w- was one guy who performs where he has a segment that's called like uh, Spoon Bending with Spielson or something. <laughs> that, that title is so funny because it suggests that it's like a recurring segment and you just see him like holding a spoon and like staring at it really hard and nothing happens. And then eventually he just walks away. And I just love the idea that like one of the features of this show is a guy fails to bend a spoon every single week there's also a character named jp mcd who by the way is named after i believe a a listener to this show uh i was gonna ask about that yeah shout out to jp mcd there was a small kickstarter campaign a few years ago where people were able to name a character in a moturn movie and they've been incorporating these names they've just come out with a movie called boston johnny where there's a character named and i kid you not Toronto's own Will Sloan. Really? There's going to be a Will Sloan character? There is. There is. That's and I, amazing. I just want to say, wasn't me. I didn't pick that name. Seriously? Someone else picked. Someone else picked the name Toronto's own Will Sloan. He, he's the he's the chief antagonist of the new movie. <laughs> so so now it's I don't like... see Scorsese naming a character after me. <laughs> Well, what's so amazing about that is like because, you know, you've like, you know, written this book and you've helped like popularize Farley. It's like you're now part of this tapestry as well. But like such that somebody who isn't even you is like naming <laughs> a character after you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's delightful. And I also, you know, there's a scene in Local Legends where Farley puts his own phone number on the screen. And he says, this is my phone number. Call me anytime. And this is like it's his actual phone number. You can call it and you'll probably get him. And um, a guy on Letterboxd, Felix Dimbinski, who wrote a review where he said, this to me is like the most powerful moment I've ever seen in a movie because it's the only example I can think of of like non-hierarchical entertainment in film. Like most movies, I don't have his review in front of me, but it was like most movies, you know, it's like Steven Spielberg tells 
tells you a story and you receive the story. Right. But in this, it's like, I'm putting you on, like, you can call me. Like, <laughs> and, and you get a little bit of that in this movie too, where it's like there are people in it in those Tussleville Talent Tonight segments. There are people who like are clearly just like, I think there are some like Moturn fans in there who right. have been recruited to just say, like they carry a different energy yeah. than like some of the other people. And this also speaks to Farley and Roxburgh's employment of, you know, non-actors. These movies are all just, like I say, like people from New England who they know, some of whom are more natural in front of the camera than others. And, you know, it calls to mind Tim and Eric or something like that. But with the crucial difference that all these people exist in the same milieu. The power dynamic is not like it is in Tim and Eric. These movies sort of cultivate an atmosphere of like, this is one big community barbecue and like you're invited to join. And yeah, you know, Uncle Jim might not be saying his lines really naturally, but he's doing his best. And like, if you laugh at that, you're you're a fucking asshole. Without laboring too hard to make this work more capital P political than it is. <laughs> When a Tim and Eric or an Andy Warhol or a David Letterman put a non-actor on screen, the political point being made is, isn't it wild that this person's on TV? And it's a productive point. It's an interesting point. It's often a very funny point. And Farley Roxburgh are doing something sort of similar, but because the power dynamic is so different, because they're from the same milieu as these people, politically, it's more about democratizing the medium and democratizing the idea of a movie star. So yeah, uh, Tussleville Talent tonight is, you know, it seems like one of the key entertainment sources for the community. One day, Walter and his cousin, Poopy McMillan, played by Chris Peterson, recall that their Uncle Dan once told them this poem when they were growing up, but their older cousin says she has no memory of it. And from here, the plot becomes sort of like primer. It's very complicated. <laughs> you find out that actually, as kids, they were visited by the ghost. It's like, it's like a Christopher Nolan movie. <laughs> yeah. <It's> like... yeah. <laughs> they were visited by the ghost of Uncle Dan, who, and the movie keeps creating rules as it goes along. <laughs> um, and it, like it works because it creates a rule that seems totally arbitrary and then it sticks to the rule. Mm. Uncle Dan died of hypothermia during the summer. Nobody knows why that was. But it turns out he got lost in the beyond, which is this state between life and death. And he's been cursed to wander the beyond for all of eternity unless someone can save him. And one of the rules is that when you're in the beyond, you can talk to children, but only under a certain age. It's funny, I'm having trouble describing the plot because you can either describe everything or nothing. It's like like there are so many rules. You know, you can't go forward. You can only go back to a year that you lived and, in. And you can only observe when you go back. You can't change anything or interact with people. Except, they, they're not except aware of the children. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. So these rules are incorporated basically at the service of the plot, but then they're they're stuck to. The main joke of the movie, the central joke is people in this very affectless way will be telling these complicated rules to somebody and they'll just like nod and be like, ah, oh, yes, that explains it. <laughs> <laughs> Matt's parents are in the movie playing his parents and they act exactly like you know the movies that I made when I was a kid where it'd be like you don't have any actors at your disposal except you know your parents and their <laughs> friends you know it's, it's like that except the, you know the kid went off to college and then came back and made the movie. Other characters continue to dot the landscape. Walter's old girlfriend, Alyssa, who is a Beyonce-like touring songstress, a pop musician, has come back into town after a tenure in 
uh, the big city. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that made me think of the Simpsons as well. Like uh, that episode where they go to the like the completely unnamed capital city. They go to an unspecified big and glamorous place. The two of them, their relationship ended some years ago, but now it looks like they're going to reconnect, and she has to make a decision whether to stay in Tussleville or whether to go back to <laughs> some big city somewhere to continue touring. She sings a couple of songs in the movie that are, act as a sort of like Greek chorus to this dilemma. More strange characters continue to occur. There are two guys who go door to door giving away light bulbs. They're like, they're like the, what's the, that guy in Lost Highway? The bald guy with the white face? Like that <laughs> yeah. scene where he's at the party and that guy just shows up. Some of the interactions reminded me of that. And like, there is something almost vaguely like Lynchian about how Farley will come up with these ideas where it's like something that's almost plausible, but just slightly off. So these guys go door to door as part of a light bulb charity. And they're just sort of like, hey, well, you know, if you if it was dark and cold, you, you wouldn't want to go out to like, we hate the idea that there's people who are like having to go out in the cold where it's like slippery and dangerous to get a light bulb. So we just go around giving out free light bulbs. Or also there's the, the original reason Farley's character decides to go back in time. And it's because in order to secure a date with his love interest after all these years, she sets him up with this challenge, which is that, you know, you have to remember what my outfit was which is just like a funny conceit that's like in real life is is kind of an implausible one but then having discovered that time travel exists he uses it for that you mentioned lynch and something that keeps me coming back to these movies and keeps me kind of on the edge of my seat about what each new movie will be is within this seemingly narrow range of backyard movies with amateur actors the sheer amount of different notes they're able to hit they've made movies that are genre parodies and silly comedies their wackiest one is probably this like buddy cop spoof called slingshot cops but then they make a movie like this that is funny but it's also harnessing that amateurish quality for something else it's harnessing it for surrealism what else should I tell you folks about the plot? There are other eccentric characters like the Tussleville Troubadours, who are a group of musicians who seemingly spend their days in the forest, drinking hot chocolate and singing songs. And they have a similar philosophy to the uh, the, the local talent show, which is that they don't record the music anywhere. It just exists, you know, for its own sake. When Uncle Dan went into the beyond... Uh, by the way, Dan Port might also be a listener to this podcast. I, I met I met him and I met him in Boston over the weekend as well. When Uncle Dan went into the beyond, he left behind his love Tess, who still lives on you know Walter's block, uh, is seemingly always in the front yard pining after her lost love. And so part of the drama of getting Dan back from the beyond is will he be able to reunite with Tess? He, he went into the beyond looking for a wedding ring. So there are a lot of different dramas. The two key ones are, will Dan be able to reunite with Tess and escape the beyond? Will Walter and Alyssa be able to... Will she have a reason to stay? Yeah, will she? Will, will they be able to consummate this long, on-off, quasi-romance? I'll probably have to get into spoiler territory here. I have made these filmmakers my life wor- my <laughs> life's work. So if you haven't seen this movie, I do encourage you to pause that and just go over to Tubi and give it, you know, 80 minutes of your life. And also just like stick with it. A-, a word that comes up in this movie over and over again is acclimate. Because shifting from the beyond to the present day reality, part of the metaphysics of the movie are that like <laughs> the change in temperature is, is such that your body might actually die from the, the sudden shock to the system. 
And I think there's a metaphor in there for just like adapting to the Farley Roxburgh <laughs> aesthetic, you know? You got to leave behind certain of your ideas about what constitutes a well-made movie. Mind you, I do think these movies are well-made, but in a way that forces you to look through different eyes. The spoiler, the spoiler is that Uncle Dan does come back. He performs on Tussleville Talent tonight. Crucially, after being visited by his sons from the future, who it turns out are the light bulb guys, Walter decides to record this one broadcast, and only this one broadcast. Uncle Dan sings a beautiful song about the importance of living in the moment and not living in the past, and with Tessa's implied permission, gives the ring to Walter and Alyssa so that they can be married. And, you know, I don't know how you were feeling, but I was feeling it again on this viewing where, like, again, for the first hour, I'm laughing, I'm thinking it's funny, and yet when he's singing this song and it, like, cuts to Tess watching it, (laughs) I don't know how the fuck they do it, how they pull off the magic trip, but I actually feel something, you know? And and you know that these are non-actors that they've recruited and said, "Could could you look in the distance as if you're watching a TV? And yet you buy into the magic trick. The movie's points are not said didactically, although they are unmistakable. Also central to the movie's philosophy is a sort of celebration of the local and the handmade over the corporate and the homogenized. The big city isn't just a big city, it's also a way of being. And in Farley's songwriting career, even though the art and the business sides of his personality are very much both present, it's also been important to him to maintain his independence and his um, regional suburban lifestyle. You know, he's made it without, you know, going to the big city, whatever whatever the big city is, whether it's a, a place or a state of mind. Regarding the aesthetics of the movie, my my good friend Matthew Kumar wrote something on Letterboxd, which is, I, I have found, where most of the best critical discourse on the Moturn films is taking place. He wrote, I realized that pretty much all the things that you think about what's important in filmmaking aren't. Professional acting, continuity, it doesn't matter a jot. What matters is if you're able to invite the audience into the world you've created. Because once the person watching is enjoying themselves, if they care about or are even just amused by the characters, if they're following the story, well, at that point, it doesn't really matter if the main character is suddenly wearing a different costume or has a poorly glued-on mustache. Because a powerful cognitive dissonance has been unlocked, one that's existed since actors took the stage. The audience's ability to be aware they're watching something that is not reality, even appreciate it, but also buy into the work's internal reality. The thing is, of course, it's not actually that simple. It's not that there's no rules. You can't make something intentionally crappy because there's no friction, as you never truly invite the audience into the world. And if creating something that hooks and then maintains an audience interest was so easy, which, I suppose, is my roundabout way of trying to get at what makes the work of regional filmmakers Charlie Roxburgh and Matt Farley so special. They've taken what they have, no budget, non-professional actors made up of friends and family and fleeting moments to film, and have created, in their way, a cinematic universe. These are works done transparently with open hearts. Works that understand you do the best with what you have and take pride in that. Works that don't sneer at themselves, although full of intentional laughs, and in turn make it almost impossible for me to imagine being sniffy about. We're sitting on one of the greatest discoveries since Copernicus. What did he discover? I don't know, but it was probably big. Well, I just want to say the band outside turned to the one good song they play and are absolutely fucking butchering it. What uh, is it? I can't recognize Well, I, I really hope that uh, they didn't pick up throughout the show, because if they did, then we've just had like a sort of the ambient hum of like badly arranged and even more badly played like Katy Perry songs and shit throughout this whole episode. But they're playing now, uh, they're playing this. Mm-hmm. 
they're playing that and they're and they're butchering it. How do you butcher superstition? If you don't hear Luke playing that live, you haven't heard it. Might tempt you a lot, but please don't give in. All of you got, because if you waste your time staring at the past, if you waste your time staring at the past, if you waste your time staring at the past, you're gonna miss out. You're gonna miss out. You're gonna miss out. You're gonna miss out. Baby, you're gonna miss out. You're gonna miss out. You're gonna miss out on the joys of the present.